when I use the term happiness, what I'm referring to is what in the academic literature we refer to as subjective well-being. So it includes both how we feel in during our days and during our experiences, as well as satisfaction about our days and about our lives overall. So it's not just this fleeting feeling, but it's also an assessment of how how we're doing in life. Hey there, friends. Welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. I like to talk health and well-being Mondays and Thursdays. I've been doing so without fail now for over three years and 300 plus episodes in the archive. So I think something in there for everyone's taste or interest. If you enjoy the podcast, please share and subscribe if you've not already done so. And leave the podcast a positive review. It helps spread the podcast far and wide. Now, regular listeners will know by now that I like to talk to interesting people every so often. And today is no exception. I'm chatting with Cassie Holmes. She's a professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, an award-winning teacher and researcher on time and happiness, and is the best-selling author of Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time and Focus on What Matters Most. I was taken by your website, first of all, because uh, I smiled when I saw the photograph of you smiling from ear to ear. And I was thinking, uh, here's here's a lady who obviously is putting the uh, research findings to good use because she is clearly leading a happy life. Would that be the case? I mean, it it is true. I am I am very happy and I absolutely apply my findings to my own life and what I teach my students. I I live. So I am happy as a result of that. (laughs) Well, there's an endorsement anyway, at least. Let me give the name of the book there, which I see you have in the background. It's called Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction, Expand Your Time and Focus on What Matters Most. Now, I know in the book uh, you talk about uh, uh, sidestepping distractions and uh, how to optimally spend your time and feel confident in those choices and creating and savouring moments of joy. We'll, We'll come to those. And there are also lots of practical exercises in the book which are really really useful but I want to go all the way back to 2013 if I could when you're sitting on that late night train uh, going from New York to Philadelphia you're on your way home you're not happy you're trying to juggle a dream job being a parent and a partner it's all a little bit too much for you can you tell me about that yeah and it's funny because with you asking me am I happy I can say that now I am um, because I've figured out um, this, this thing of time where, but I will say that my relationship with time started off as not very happy at all. And pointing back to that, that night on the train where it was, it was one of these just like very hectic days that I think so many people can relate to where I am rushing through it. And to, you know, I, I have my work. And as you mentioned, I was, rushing in this crazy day. My presentation was like scheduled between back-to-back meetings and then I'm rushing to this networking dinner and then I'm rushing to the train station to catch the last train that would get me home to my four-month-old and husband asleep in Philly. And I made the train, but as I was sitting there, sort of looking at the night lights whiz by, I was like, I don't know if I can keep up. Between all of these things, I just don't have enough time to get it all done 
let alone to do any of it well, let alone to enjoy any of it along the way. And I was just so, I wanted more time, time not just to get more done. I wanted more time so that I could slow down and actually experience my days so that, you know, years on, I wouldn't look back and my whole life would have passed by in this same blur. And I know now that that feeling, because I've been researching it, is what we refer to as time poverty. It's that acute feeling of having too much to do and not enough time to do it. And it is an unhappy state. It is tied to high levels of stress um, and feelings of overwhelm. It also has really negative effects on us in other ways. It makes us less healthy because we're less likely to exercise. It makes us less nice when we're in a hurry. We are less likely to so slow down and help others out. When we're in that time crunch, the way we show up to everyone around us is just short and stressed and not present and nice. And I was like, oh my gosh, the thing I need to do is to quit. Like it's impossible to do this all. So I just need to quit my job. But I was like, is it that if I did quit and I had a whole lot more time, would I be happier? And I realized that's actually an empirical question. And as a social psychologist, that was one that I could actually test. So I decided before, you know, going into my boss's office, and be like I quit, you know, this dream job. And before telling my husband, I was like, all right, we're going to pack up and move to the beach. This was something to test. And I, we've since looked what is the relationship between the amount of discretionary time people have and their happiness? And what we find is really interesting that it's like a inverted U-shape. So it's like a arc, which is interesting because it means that happiness goes down on both ends of the spectrum. Yes, people with too little time are less happy, me on the train that night. But what was also interesting was this other side where there is such thing as having too much time. We saw that when people spend in our data, and this is an um, American sample of working and non-working Americans, a nationally representative sample, we saw that those with more than approximately five hours of discretionary time in the day were also less happy. And that was really interesting because it's like, well, why? How could it be if you had all the hours of your day to spend exactly how you wanted, you'd be less happy and digging into the data more. What it turns out is that we don't want to have too little time because that's stressful, but we want to be somewhat productive. That is, we are averse to being idle. So when you sort of have all the hours of your days, day in and day out with nothing to show for it, it undermines people's sense of purpose. And so this, and also looking at the data, there was actually this pretty wide range in the middle where the relationship was flat, suggesting that it's actually not about the amount of available time you have, it's really how you spend the time that you have. And that is actually the crux of the issue is not, okay, how much time do we have available um, and wanting more? That's not the answer for greater happiness. It is really how do we invest the time that we have available? And that is actually what I've then redirected my research agenda to figure out how do we invest the hours of our days so that we feel joy in our days so that at the end of the week, we look back and even if it's a little busy and uh, we feel fulfilled so that at the end of our years, we can look back without regret. 
and having a sense of satisfaction. And so that is what my research digs into and then sharing the findings. Actually, I, I developed a course that I've been teaching at UCLA to our MBAs and our executive MBAs that is applying the science of happiness to life design, sharing exactly what the research, not only mine, but the field, um, and then seeing the like wonderful impact on my students when I was approached about writing a book, I was like, yes, because these findings, like more people should know about them and apply them. And that's what happier hour is about. And that's what I apply to my life too, to answer your question. It's like, I am happy, even though I still have the pressures of now I have two kids instead of one kid. I still have my partner. I still have, you know, friends I want to be good friend to, the chores, et cetera, a demanding job. But I am happy and still time poor, but I know how to invest my time so that I have a sense of satisfaction and fulfillment. And I do find these pockets of joy in my day-to-day. And those little pockets sort of color um, how I feel overall. No wonder you're happy. You've had a personal and a professional epiphany and you, you've lived off uh, the discoveries that you've made through your research. And uh, a lot of your research is on your website and uh, uh, CassieHolmes.com. I'll give more details on that a little later on if people want to peruse some of your research findings. And in the title of the book, you make a reference to distraction. And it seems that we are constantly distracted these days, uh, be it by a, a myriad of different things, but principally, uh, probably social media and the internet and other low value activities that act as time sinks and uh, can you give your thoughts on this and then talk to me then about one of the one of the main features in your book uh, which you mention uh, in relation to time tracking exercises and how we can use those in order to maximize the happiness that we experience yeah those are all great questions so to the first part around distraction we are distracted a whole lot of the time. There's interesting research um, by Dan Gilbert and Matt Killingsworth where they would ping people over the course of their days and ask, what are you doing? As well as what are you thinking about? As in, are you thinking about what you're currently doing? Are you thinking about something else? And how happy are you? What they found is that we are distracted almost half of the time, 47% of the time, we are not thinking about what we're currently doing. Our mind is somewhere else. And they also found that we are less happy. So we are happier when we are focused on our current activity, when we are engaged in what we're currently doing compared to when our mind is wandering. Now, we are prone to distraction. And a major source of distraction are our smartphones. They're so handy and so useful in so many ways but they are also a major source of distraction. Even if you're not on your phone, the mere presence of, here I am holding my phone, that's right here in front of me. Just seeing the phone reminds you of all the other things you could and maybe should be doing at that moment. And there's actually also an interesting study where they had friends dining together and they told some of them, put your phone away out of sight. Others could leave their phone on the table like we normally do. And what they found there is that those who were, um, whose phones were out of sight enjoyed the dining experience more because they were more engaged. The mere, the phone on the table made people feel distracted. Their minds were somewhere else. 
And this is an important context because going to your second question of how, what are ways of spending time that are really worthwhile, that do produce happiness, satisfaction, social connection is one of those. Dining with friends is absolutely one of those. And if our mind is somewhere else, not on these, you know, this wonderful activity that you're doing with people you care about, having fun, and particularly if you're busy, right, time poor, and here you are making time to hang out with your friends, yet your mind is somewhere else, then you, it's like a waste, right? You're missing out on this sort of potential joy. Now, to the question of, okay, well, what are these ways of spending that are worthwhile? And time tracking, research uses time tracking as researchers looking at, okay, what are the activities that people are doing? How do they feel? So that you can pull out on average, what are those activities that tend to be associated with a more positive emotion? What are those that tend to be associated with more negative emotion? Social connection, whether sort of through intimacy or spending time with family and friends, on average are the happiest activities. On average, or at least happy activities are commuting, working, and housework. And that is bad news because altogether those three activities comprise the bulk of our work week. But we can address that. But also it's important to know that's based off of averages. So, you know, for, and you see in the data, and there are some individuals for whom their work hours are very happy. And it's not like every work activity is similarly unhappy. And it's not like every time you're socializing, it's all that fun. So instead of relying on averages, what I encourage folks to do is to track your time, your own time over the course of a week, writing down for each 30 minutes, what activity are you doing? And as you come out of that activity, rating it on a 10 point scale, how do you feel? How satisfied do you feel? And there's, it's very simple time tracking sheet on, on my website. And um, it's, I will admit, as I have my students do this, it's tedious. It is very tedious to track your time for a week and write, you know, rate how you're feeling, but it's totally worth it because at the end of the week, you have this fantastic personalized data set that you can look for yourself. What are those activities that got your highest ratings? What are those activities for you that were the most satisfying? And being more specific than just work and socializing, like which of your work activities are satisfying? Which ways of socializing are the things that make you actually feel happy and more connected? And you can also see just how much time you're spending on your various activities. So you can see what is that wasted time? Like, holy cow, I had no idea I was spending X amount of time on whether it's social media or a lot of my students are noting and when they do this, like I spend so much time watching TV and like they look at their ratings and it's like, oh, well, actually that first hour of TV was really positive. Like, you know, I enjoyed it. But then hours two, three, four, <laughs> et cetera, you see lower ratings and social media is another interesting one where People think that like, oh, that's my fun time. Like that's something that I enjoy doing. But then they actually look at their ratings. It's like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> it's actually not making me feel that great. And I'm spending a whole lot of time. And that's, that is a great um, insight because it's so easy with that information to be like, okay, 
I'm going to reallocate that time that is not fun and it's not necessary and then dedicate and sort of spend that reclaimed time on activities that now you know do bring you joy because you have the ratings right there in front of you. What are those ways of spending time? Whether it's exercise, actually one of my students was like, it's so interesting. I thought there were some activities like watching TV that I thought I really enjoyed, but my ratings said that I don't. And then there are these activities that I totally dread, like exercise and socializing, but then they look at their data and they're like getting nines and tens out of 10 point skill. They're like, actually, I dread these activities like exercise, but it turns out I really enjoy it. It makes me feel really great. So that is also uh, good information to have for yourself. It's like, okay, how should I, what are activities that are worthwhile for me that I should dedicate my hours to? There's a lot of potential revelations for folks in this time tracking data. And the instead of like me, you know, waving my finger, I'm like, these are the ways you should spend your time. These are the ways you should not spend your time. The time tracking data allows you to identify for yourself, what are those worthwhile ways of spending? And for yourself, what are those ways that end up feeling like a waste? And that's a great opportunity to reallocate. Well, something like exercise is is probably something that uh, might appeal to some people, but and is is negotiable. But when it comes to something else in the book that you mentioned that certainly isn't negotiable is sleep and the quality of sleep that mm-hmm. factors in and affects your happiness levels also. Yeah, and um, I have this wonderful um, doctor who is a doctor in sleep medicine come and present in my course and uh, and one of the the assignment for that week is I have have my students sleep at least seven hours, um, but actually the recommended uh, is seven to eight hours. It depends on you as an individual, you know, the amount of sleep that is needed for you. And what it's not only important in terms of your um, cognitive functioning and your physical well-being, but it absolutely affects your mood. And yes, there are also really long-term health, uh, negative health effects of being sleep deprived, but the effects are so immediate. If you have a bad night of sleep, the next day you just feel crabby and you're not happy. And it's interesting, you see these activities that carry over. It's not only how you feel during the activity, but how it affects how you feel in subsequent activities. Sleep, and exercise are activities that really affect how you feel um, afterwards. And both of them are getting enough sleep and again, at least seven to eight hours of um, consecutive uh, sleep, um, as well as exercise has these really mood boosting effects subsequently. As does being outside actually, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> simply being outside has its own positive effect, which is really interesting. And is that because of the exposure to sunlight or is it literally because we evolved to live outdoors, essentially? Um, I don't know the underlying reason. The uh, data or the research that is underlying this um, came out of the UK. So it's not just, you know, lucky us in Southern California with sunshine <laughs> being outside. 
But in the UK, there was an interesting study where they used geolocation data so they could see at any moment exactly where someone was. And then it would ping them and ask them how they were feeling to rate on a, I think it was a five point skill. And they, what they saw was simply being outside compared to inside, people were significantly happier. And yes, there was an additional effect when it was nice weather than when it wasn't. So when it's sunny, people there you have this positive effect. Also actually being in a natural environment versus an urban environment had its own positive effect, but controlling for weather and the outside environment, simply being outside compared to inside had its own positive effect on mood. Anecdotally, I can completely relate to that. And I'd say most of our listeners can too, because uh, certainly uh, being outdoors and being immersed in nature is something that boosts my mood. Now, over the last decade, there's been a huge increase in the levels of research into gratitude. You again touch upon this in your book and you introduce the concept of a gratitude letter. Can you talk yeah. to us about that? Yeah, it's such a beautiful um exercise. Um, and gratitude is very important and has a very significant effect on how we feel. Um, and when I, and actually even saying when I use the term happiness, what I'm referring to is what in the academic literature we refer to as subjective well-being. So it includes both how we feel in during our days and during our experiences as well as satisfaction about our days and about our lives overall. So it's not just this fleeting feeling, but it's also an assessment of how how we're doing in life. Um, and it's really the looking at the inputs into that. Um, there are things that we don't have control over, our inherited disposition, our sort of circumstances that we don't have immediately immediate control over, but something that has a very big effect and that we do over have control over is what we think about and what we do in the day-to-day. -day. And when I talk about what we think about is, are we focusing on the good stuff that is there? Of course, there's bad stuff and, you know, and negative aspects of every situation, but there's also goodness and gratitude. What that is doing is, is drawing our attention to what is good. It's instead of like, what do I want? It is what do I have that I have to that is good in my life and I feel lucky for and grateful for. So even practicing gratitude, I mean, there's also you can keep a gratitude journal as a way to like practice focusing on the good and it has a very positive effect. But the gratitude letter is identifying someone in your life whom you are grateful for and whom you haven't told them that you are writing a letter to them. And even the writing process is so powerful because it draws your attention to the goodness of that person and to the goodness of that relationship. And then the part of delivering it and you can deliver it either by like, you know, putting it in the mail, um, you can send the email or you can go to the person either calling them up or what I did when I did this <laughs> exercise myself was drive to the person and read the letter to them. And um, so in any way of delivery, up to you, but what's so powerful is the effect, not only on them, like it is also the effect on your relationship that it is absolutely clarifying and solidifying the goodness 
And it's also, it's interesting, I've seen as my students have done this, that um, sort of tried relationships get mended in this way. But even if it's not a try, you know, like a relationship that needs mending, it is just so um, wonderful to for the person to hear what they mean to you. And it's interesting, there's even research that shows that um, the effects of this, that people think that delivering the gratitude letter will be more awkward than it actually is. They also think that the person knows that they're grateful more than they actually do and that the content of what they're grateful for is known, but it's not. And they think the other person, it will make them happy, but it makes them significantly happier. So all of this is like, you think it might be a little awkward to do this. You think that the person already knows it and you think it may make them happier, but it is not awkward and it makes them significantly happier than you could even imagine. And so it is such a, it's such a powerful, um, it's such a powerful sort of exercise to do and it has lasting effects. Isn't it amazing all of the assumptions that we make just thinking about how somebody will process our saying thank you to them? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will say that for, as, as my students have done this, some of them have found that actually the reading part is sort of awkward. So they're like, oh, actually for, I realized that maybe I should have just sent it so that that person can actually process it without the awkwardness of like, you know, standing. So maybe, you know, with, with some of my students' experiences as a bit of a guide on how best to do this, um, it is writing the letter, delivering it in such a way that that person can really ex feel it. Um, and then, uh, and then presumably they will tell you how great it made them feel. <laughs> and make yourself feel good in the process. Uh, yeah. Can we discuss the theme of the shifting meaning of happiness, which suggests to me that happiness isn't a fixed state and our perception of happiness changes over the course of our lifetime. What factors play into this? Yeah, in our, our research, we found that happiness, the way we express and experience happiness shifts for among younger people, it is more about excitement. Um, and then as folks get older, it becomes more around sort of calm contentment, um, which is interesting uh, to be aware of because it increases understanding, not only of folks in our lives who are at you know, of a different age and understanding that when they see say they're happy, you know, what, do, what does that actually mean? But it also increases our understanding of ourselves, our sort of future selves um, that we don't, and our current selves that we don't sort of judge how we are doing based off of these sort of conceptions of what, uh, you know, happiness was when uh, we were younger. So like, I mean, just to make this a little more concrete, right? Like, as a 20 year old, I was like, oh my gosh, uh, like as long as I don't become that boring person who on Friday nights is like watching TV with a glass of wine, right? But then as a 40 year old, that Friday night with a glass of wine watching TV is absolutely delightful. It's not that my life has become boring. I am very happy. It's just what happiness is. 
has shifted. And I think um, a sort of big contributor to that is that it's not just how we experience happiness as it changes over our with age, but also the types of experiences that produce happiness change with age. We find in our research among younger people, we were looking at what's the happiness we experienced from extraordinary versus ordinary experiences. And we find that for younger people, it is those extraordinary experiences like, you know, well, life milestones, uh, you know, big trips or cultural events like going to concerts, whereas ordinary experiences, these sort of simple moments shared with loved ones, um, noticing nature, you know, those simple, like little treats of that nice glass of wine, the yummy chocolate, um, these ordinary experiences, as people get older, they experience increasing happiness from them, such that we see that among older people, those ordinary experiences produce as much happiness as extraordinary experiences. And what's also really important to know is that it's not about age per se. It's about recognizing time as precious, because when people, younger people tend to view their futures as very expansive. As you get older, you recognize that your time is actually finite and limited. And with that, you start to savor more. Like all of your time becomes more precious and you start noticing the goodness and even the simple things. And we found that among even young people, when we led them to recognize that their time is limited, that they too savored more. They too noticed um, the the goodness in and the happiness from these ordinary moments. And so I think that's actually a really important takeaway as we're thinking about time and happiness, that it's not just the activities that we spend our time on that you can sort of be informed in your time tracking from your time tracking, but also when you're spending the time on those activities, especially those ordinary moments that are, there's so much potential joy in them is to not be distracted, to actually really continue to pay attention and notice because there's so much happiness available to us right there in the time that we're already spending. It doesn't require more time. It does require noticing, paying attention, and sort of soaking up the goodness in the time that we're already spending. Well, that leads me very neatly and nicely to my my final question. And this is in relation to a very poignant part of the book, the eulogy exercise. Can you tell us about this? Yeah. Um, and it's it's a, potentially a tough one, but it is so positive in terms of its impact. So writing your eulogy and what that does is it leads you to project forward to the end of your life and think about how do you want to be remembered? How do you want, what do you want your legacy to be? How do you want to, you know, those words, if someone's describing you, reflecting back on your life, what do you want them to say? And in doing that, what it really clarifies is the life that you want to live. What it really does is it urges you to take this broader perspective of time, thinking not just hour by hour, but about your years and your life overall, because that clarifies what your values are. It clarifies what ultimately matters to you. And with that understanding, 
then that can inform how you spend your hours today. Um, and we find in our research that actually people who take a broader view of their time, thinking about years in their life overall versus the hours of today, are report greater happiness, greater meaning in life because they spend their time on what's important, informed by these higher values of like what matters to you, as opposed to just reacting to what's urgent and sort of seems urgent in that moment, hour by hour. And so all of this is interesting because, you know, I've been asked like, why is the title of the book Happier Hour? And it's really because these values of what we care about in our life overall, we get to play out in the hours that we're spending today. You don't have to wait for later. And it is all these hours sum up to our days and those days sum up to the years of our lives. And so we have choice in what we're gonna focus on, how we're gonna spend our time um, and that will make those hours happier so that your life overall is more satisfying and fulfilling. Well, as I said at the outset of this interview, the, that smile on your face that you've worn the entire length of this interview is evidence that you practice what you preach. Uh, and there's a plenty uh, to read and garner and, and advice to garner from this book. Let me give the title again, Happier Hour, How to Beat Distraction expand your time and focus on what matters most. Some great advice there. Uh, CassieHolmes.com for all details on the book and your research. Uh, Professor Cassie Holmes, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. It was such a treat. Mm -hmm.